All right, I'll be right back. We'll start okay. very briefly. Well, I wonder why you were, why you changed your seats. Mary will never leave that side. She's locked. Well, I just, I have such a good view of you, Bishop. You You know, and then All right, we'll start now. Let's pray. Bless the Lord has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior Jesus. Hello to all. How's everyone? See our online friends. We're having, uh, Adriana will laugh at us in Colorado, but we're having our certifiably winter day. It's 60 degrees here. You're huddled under heaters. Uh, what's the temperature in Colorado today, Adriana? 
Well, it was sunny and 70 yesterday, and we've got snow today. Snow. Beautiful. So the, the, the huddling over here is because that's where the heaters are, so we're all... Uh, the bishop insists that we stay Over here, the, the frozen shows. So we're going to jump into the epistle of Jude today. And um, it's, a, it's a different kind of epistle. Um, it seems... Um, You know, when we read Second and Third John, we talked kind of about, or I at least opined that it seemed to speak a little bit of a what you might call a, a Christian frontier. That is, the church is not highly established an organization, and the appeal was being made to you know these leaders in, in probably house churches, and some of whom are are misbehaving. So there, and, and Jude has some of this, the same kind of exhortation to the church uh, in general. And it's important to remember, too, when we talk about um, the church, I was thinking about this, because we think about, you know, beware of these people in church. We think, oh, yeah, okay, when we come on Sunday, we look around and see, you know, who, who, who he's talking about. But this wasn't really the experience of church for them. These churches are meeting in houses. They have a, a certainly uh, a central Sunday Eucharistic foundation, but they're probably eating together all the time, praying together all the time. It's largely in house settings, and there may be multiple homes in the area where groups are meeting, probably homes of wealthier people, because that's that's who would have a room to fit the group. So it, it's we think of the church here, we have to think of it very organically. And we got that with John, where it was... Um, John is defining the church, but it's 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 a community of people. There's nothing about it that is a building. And it's very important for us to, to bear that in mind because we're so used to thinking of the church as a building. And that overemphasis of church as building undermines the church. The, 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 the building helps us in the sense of, of providing space for us to gather, providing space for us to practice hospitality, you know, which would be hard. I mean, the church would look a lot different if we were still in largely home setting. We wouldn't be here. We'd all be in, you know, uh, probably some North County thing in that group and some here. And of course, remember, we were, we're driving places. They weren't driving places. They were walking places. So so your church, your church necessarily had to be within hailing distance of where you are, I mean, people probably walk a, a good, they're probably used to walking longer distances. But. Well, they, they certainly multiplied ordained people in order to meet the need of churches, you know, you and and this is something that's significant to note that um, um, 
Ministry develops in the New Testament not to fill a structure, but to fill the need. The, the, the deacons, for example, who are created in Acts are, are, are set apart in order to take care of, of a needed ministry to, to, uh, you know, to, to widows in the church and that, that sort of. So um, that's right. I mean, people were, were, so you have house church, someone's got to be in charge, you've got to train them, you got to, okay, who, who do we choose? And of course, it wasn't, okay, we're going to send you off for three years to seminary. You know, it was, it was likely that, that some of the leaders were um, either Jewish converts or Gentile God-fears who had a long time in the faith. So, for example, even with the apostles, we think, oh, they're just simple fishermen. They were Jewish people who went to the synagogue all the time and probably went down to Jerusalem for all the major feasts. They knew the story. They weren't like, oh, you know, they, I came to church, got converted, and now I'm in charge. So the, the, these are, um, it was just a different kind of setting. And, it, you know, that, 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 but when you, so that's right. And, and there would have been, um, you kind of got that today in our morning prayer lesson from Timothy, where St. Paul's instructing Timothy, who essentially is a bishop, to appoint elders and instructing them what to look for when you do that. Because, yeah, you, you can't be every place. So you've got to put this person here, put the person there. And then immediately, if the timeless issue of disciplinary problems arise, you make some, uh, you know, you put some ministry and all of a sudden they don't remain faithful, they take off. Even our Lord, who had Judas, bears witness to that. Yeah. What's that? We certainly have. But the truth is that nobody has, no church has ever perpetuated ministry that hasn't had that. No one wants to talk about it. We, we, we you know, but, but yeah, everybody's got those who, who, that's just a natural and normal way that faith works itself out of community is that some people do not endure because there's no point to have seen the Christian life as a battle to be faithful through temptation if there's no chance of not making it. <laughs> why, why fight the battle? So that means as we're fighting, some people will, will check out, some people will stumble and drift away for a while and then come back. So all those things happen. Your thoughts before we jump in. Let's just jump right into Jude then. Um, and he's, he's going to address, just by way of introduction, um, essentially the problem of what you might call licentious teachers who are separating. It's not completely different from what St. John is dealing with, who's dealing with, we dealt with, is people who um, hold some kind of faith in Jesus but think that can be separated from their behavior and then therefore feel themselves to be free morally to do all manner of things. And, and Jude's going to link up and, and he's going to connect it with biblical, you know, precedence, narrative themes seen in biblical stories that he connects these people to. So, uh, first one, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, who is this Jude? Um, the tradition says that um, 
This Jude is um, one of the brothers of our Lord. So the James he's a brother is, is James the brother of our Lord. And Jude is his brother. Why does he call himself a bondservant of Jesus and a brother? Well, he clearly understands that Jesus wasn't just his brother. So he's, most of his brothers didn't believe in him during his life. They came to faith later on. And so it, that would be the most likely. There was um, another Judas the Apostle um, who wasn't unfaithful, but it it um, probably wasn't him because this Jude will mention the apostles in such a way that he doesn't count himself among them. Huh? Many brothers. I don't. I, I'm not prepared to answer that question right away. You. So, and the question, of course, the debate there is, you know, the, the 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 perspective that holds that the perpetual virginity of Mary says these were children of Joseph by a previous marriage who became Jesus' half brothers, and then there's the you know the, the possibility they were just children of. Um, Mary after Jesus. Um, you should be aware that the church has almost universally adopted the former. That, that these were older brothers of Jesus by Joseph by previous marriage and, and that Jesus and that Mary remained a virgin after um, after the birth of Jesus. Um, It was developed in the tradition, uh, and it was probably related to the growth of the idea that the that the celibate virgin state was superior to the other. Um, and we see it as Anglicans. It, it's, it's part of. It is certainly and undoubtedly part of the ancient tradition. So you'll see certain prayers and liturgy talk about the, the blessed and glorious never virgin Mary. We um, so we don't recoil. It it falls into the place of what we call pious opinion. It's not a doctrine as central as that which is stated in the creed, but it's not one we contend against. We just don't know. And I really counsel just embrace you know being comfortable with the tradition and, and being comfortable being agnostic because. It's funny when people argue about this. It, it, it either is or isn't so. And probably at the last day, we'll get the truth of that. And it's not something to spend your time arguing about. It's just thinking about it. So, but, but also, there's, there's the hyper arguments on both sides that want to prove it. And then there's the sort of more Protestant, no, they were just in. Neither can be undoubtedly proved from the scriptures particular point or axe to grind on it. Uh, Mary remains the preeminent saint, one who bore the Son of God. Um, and uh, even her perpetual virginity um, shouldn't be viewed. I mean, Alexander Schmemann has a great section on this in For the Life of the World as, as a kind of a, a sexlessness or a, it's, it's more, even in the New Testament, the um, St. Paul writes about the church uh, that he he um, his labor was to present the church as a chaste virgin to Christ. 
So it isn't, um, and even in Revelation where it says, like we had this passage, uh, or the passage, I think we had last night, in, or All Saints Day, where um, he talks about the first fruits to, to God because they are virgins. Doesn't necessarily mean they never had sex. It speaks of the state of the bride of Christ as purified, and um, so, um, and the, di- the different contours of, of, of sort of recognized and developed virtue and acquired virtue by repentance were highlighted in John's Gospel by the two Marys, the mother of God and Magdalene, both who are part of the bride, who, Im- who symbolize the bride, but, but the di- dimensions of, of that. So anyway, there's that. So this is probably who Jude is is um, the brother of our Lord, either older or younger, depending which which acts you want to grind. We're not going to grind either of them here today. Um, but calling himself the brother of James would be clearly identifying him. And just like when John calling himself the elder, probably knew as John was, this is invest, this, we know we know who he is. He has a, a status of authority. Um, heard in the church. The verse, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now called, um, this is the sense of, of how, how God calls us to faith. And our, God's choice of us in other places in the New Testament is made certain by our receiving and submitting to the call. Um, but to say that, that to those who are called um, kind of harkens back to the idea of, of God's chosen people and the um, priority of God's pursuit over our response. Which is why in, in the church historically, there's greater emphasis placed on the sacrament of baptism than the experience of conversion. Sacrament of baptism is God's marking, calling you. Your own conversion, which can be a gradual and continual response, is your reception of that call, your acceptance of that call. As opposed to the idea that, that your calling is all about your personal decision for Jesus. Sometimes the individual aspect is sometimes overemphasized in the evangelical language that 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 doesn't balance that out. There's that. Sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus because we are we live in him in the spirit. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. Interesting uh, choice of words. They're not a usual greeting. We remember that these. This is what we have here in verses one and two. Is this just a typical way that you'd start a letter, dear so and so? So it's I, here's who I am. Here's who I'm writing to, and there's a greeting, and in. Um, 
for example, even the word grace was had a different meaning in, in, in secular language and would often be used in just very ordinary email or letters letters sent out. So mercy, peace, and love are interesting. I've had commentators try to say, well, there's some Trinitarian thing here, and then try to match it up. I had a, I was reading a commentary yesterday where he tried to match it up. I said, it's interesting matching it up. I think they had it all wrong, like you matched the wrong one. If you were to match mercy, peace, and love with a, each one of those words with a member of the Trinity, which one should you match him up with? So, 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 okay, so you, you would say the Father is love, love mercy, Spirit. peace. That's what I said. It's not what this commentator said. So I, I agree with Cheryl. Yeah. I mean, you think, well, it says that even uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God in that greeting, and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost, but the love comes from God. The mercy is manifest in the sacrifice of Jesus. And peace comes in the harmony between God, the Spirit brings us, and even in the harmony between amongst ourselves, which is the byproduct of that peace. Demonthel. Demonthel. Yeah, I remember the commentator. There was some good things the commentator was reading, but like, no. <laughs> Huh? Yeah. Well. So, um, <laughs> verse three. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith which is once delivered to the saints. Now, what to, to suggest is that um, that um, he intended to write a letter which is a more kind of objective exposition of what we believe in. But then some urgency came up and he's going to write this letter instead, which has a great deal of emotion to it, to, to, to root out error, to be very firm about this. So that seems to be the sense of it. For certain men have crept in unnoticed. So it's unnoticed. So there are, there are people in the community who are not really aware of, the community is not aware of, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Interesting, that kind of plays off against the called in the verse 1, that the called, the chosen, versus these who are not called, they, they just seem to be among us and are marked out for this condemnation. And we'll notice that Jude does not pull any punches in his language. <laughs> He's not, he doesn't have that sort of politic turn of phrase. He's going to, um, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. 
and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, it's a good meditation. Carol's question was, how could they be unnoticed? And um, if you have a you know, a, a Christian community, we know what the size of it is, but um, you can have elements that that come in that you're not aware of that uh, subtly bring in certain teachings. And remember also that this is a very young church still. And so it would be easy um, for people to be deceived by the appearance of this, but maybe the importing of some of the old things, the familiar things they were used to, and, and, and without the clear lines of demarcation. So I think this is why the, the, it, it's a pretty, um, you'll hear it quoted a lot, that verse 3, contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. There's a content here of a body. Again, it gets back to John, who, who it was the incarnation and all that means in terms of revelation, the apostolic witness to that, delivered to the community that lives that out in its common life. And Jude's kind of playing on some of these same thing, themes that, so, so this creeping in unaware, you know, unnoticed, they're already holding to this. They're kind of subtly bringing in things while pretending to be in the faith. And this is pretty common, because the, the, the real danger of the church is never, you know, the atheist who wants to yell at you, you know where they are. Um, it's the person who says, yeah, Jesus, and then begins to behave in, in ways that are, not, that are not right or undermine or cause divisions and things like that. Deny, denying our Lord Jesus Christ. Which, it, it does seem again that all of these, and I, I say all of these with John and Jude, um, are caught up in this kind of Gnostic thing, but there's a certain sense in which this Gnostic element pertains to time, timelessly to all of these kinds of aberrant things that creep into the body, and they're, they're based on the idea that I have some personal special knowledge about Jesus that I've received that somehow is apart from this common deposit. And that's what happens today. Oh, yeah, why the vision about this? Okay. So that's why John says, you know, test the spirits. Always against the faith. That that uh, that that if somebody is claiming to have some insight that's clearly in contrast with the faith once delivered to the saints and the communal sense of common moral life that flows out of it, we know it, it's it's a lie. And their vision, their gnostic, is their secret personal esoteric insight is false. And that's exactly what this kind of now you as people claiming special insight, 
but the point here is that the, the, the incarnation and the revelation of God in Christ is a specific thing that makes a specific statement about God and a specific claim on us. And most of the sort of Gnostic, my personal opinion, my personal vision kinds of things are ways of, in, in fact, in function, releasing me in some way from one of those claims. Certainty of who Jesus is and, the, and, and, and my call to, to respond to that with a certain kind of life. If we can make it uncertain. And it's interesting that the dynamic here, unnoticed, crept in unnoticed, much like the serpent into the first community, a man and woman, creeps in, oh, it's a snake. That no one seemed like, you know, I mean, God, did God really say that? No, because here's what it is. And that's what you get with all heretics. Yet, did God really say that? How do we know? Let's have, and this was the classic thing like in the Episcopal Church. Let's, let's appoint a commission to study this sexual issue. Scripture says no. Also, we have a commission to study it. That's always that's always the indication that um, I, I do want to say that um, in in the idea of the ambiguities of pastoral work, it's never the the the, the things we have nuance on is never the commandment itself, which is clear enough. The pastoral work is, we realize none of us are really quite there yet. So we're dealing with people who are learning to walk, learning to love in the right way. And so um, upholding the faith and the communal moral life that flows out of it does not mean moralistically you know, pointing a finger at everybody. It's it's understanding that the standard is the standard. We are here, and we're helping people grow into perfect love. But holding on to faith as a standard never changes. To the degree that in our current struggle we're not quite there means we're short of the standard, <laughs> and we need to grow. And there needs to be that ongoing work of repentance and growth into that. The mistake that is made in the church is when we, okay, in order to understand people, act like it doesn't matter. And it's, the problem with that is not love, because this is something that we have to get our arms around or our heads around, is that Jude will talk about, you know, sort of licentiousness and immoral behavior. It doesn't work for anybody. It promises something, a freedom from the constraints of something, but when people believe it, they end up, like Adam and Eve, naked, ashamed, and afraid, and hiding from God in the bushes. So it's, 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 it's not wrong because, this, because, because as the devil suggested, there's something good that God doesn't want you to have. It's wrong because it will never work. As, as you live that out, you're going to get hurt by it. So, so our pastoral concern for people to cultivate moral boundaries is for your protection not for your harm. And when we relax the moral balance and say, oh, well, I understand, we're saying, 
we're, we're kind of giving a tacit approval to go hurt yourself. And that's a stupid thing. Um, it's, it's kind of like, um, and this is a real issue now, so I'll raise it because I've got a few different situations come up, but this transgender issue is a really big thing. Now, there are kids who are struggling for various reasons. Uh, our culture is disordered in a lot of ways, the way people get most of their identity from online stuff. And so when a kid is struggling, you want to have a compassion on a kid. You would deal with that. But you don't want to pretend that to tell them, oh, yeah, this will solve your problem. It'll, it'll make you, you know, a disfigured, mutilated person later in life who now is really like, what did I do? Because there's no answer. It's not real. There's a confusion we can have compassion for. But we, we can't pretend that there's it's a react that, that that the disordered interior desire is gonna really find its fulfillment by doing that thing. And this is true of all disordered desire. It promises something. It's right back to Genesis three. The reason I believe Genesis three, it has nothing to do with the dating of Genesis or with literal Adam and Eve, whatever. It just it, it rings so it's true. This is it, it's 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 you know, they promise that you'll know everything, this will be great, and you eat it, and you, now you know everything, you didn't really want to know that. Now you're naked, and your clothes don't fit. Now I'm hiding, i got to spend hiding from God, and God comes, I'm afraid of him. We were, a couple weeks ago, we were walking hand in hand in the garden. And, and to get back from that place, we have to have seasons of healing and growth to get back into that relational space. So my point here is we never change the standard. We're pastoral, we're compassionate to people who are struggling, but the compassion is never acting like the disorder isn't a disorder. That doesn't help anybody. But a lot of times in our culture, there's a false sense that to, to say anything you're doing is wrong is to not love you. But, okay, well, that's good for you. It's like, but, but if you think about it, that doesn't apply to any other thing you do in life at all. Oh, you, you feel like driving on the wrong side of the road. Okay, well, good. So when you have a head-on collision, well, that's, no, you say no, you've got to be over here. It won't work. So I don't understand. We have to understand morally it's the same thing. It doesn't work. The human person was not made to operate that way. And, it's, and no matter how much you want it to work that way, and we've all at some point in time in our life wanted it to work that way. If, you're, if you don't understand that about yourself, you're lying. But, but when you tried it, a lot of repentance is, I mean, my own was like, because I, I didn't raise, get raised with a lot of moralism. I had to figure it out. Mine was like, this isn't working. Oh, there we are. All that. <laughs> but you wish it would. But so, so they crept in unnoticed. But verse 5. I want to remind you, though you once knew this. So this suggests, remember last, last Sunday I talked in preaching, all preaching is remembrance. You know this. Okay, we just, let's just bring it back to mind here. Um, 
So it suggests that this community has become a little forgetful and the unnoticed ones, they're being tolerated a little bit. Because we don't want to be mean to people. So you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So, let's, don't see this as like some sort of harsh, arbitrary sentence. Root ourselves in the story. The Exodus, he brought Israel out of Egypt. They went into the wilderness to be tested. And then some failed the test. With, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where St. Paul says, with, with many of them, God was not well pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Why? Because they fell into idolatry. This is that scene at the foot of Mount Sinai, which became uh, an idolatrous party, probably full of some sexual immorality, which attended the pagan worship. And so, so he's, he's linking the story of Israel Israel with the Christian story. And almost every New Testament writer does that. That's what we really have to get our arms around. We're living in a story. So in baptism, we've been brought out of the Egypt of our sin and, and, and received that baptism through faith. We also go into the wilderness and their temptations, and we learn, oh, that didn't work out very well for those. Sometimes they want to just give up. or, or and, and so this is what he's saying. He, God destroyed. It didn't work for them. Remember that, that those who weren't faithful in the wilderness were overthrown and did not enter the promised land because they did not have faith. And faith is not just an intellectual belief that Jesus is Lord, but trust. Trust that I will hold on to that faith through this wilderness because God is faithful. In the angels, verse 6, who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, this is most likely... Um, a reference to Genesis chapter 6. The sons of God saw the daughters of women that they were fair. They took wives, the ones they wanted. That the idea is that, 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 that the, the angels who fell there didn't keep their boundary and, and went outside and did this thing and as a result, they are, uh, Peter mentions this, we're going to do First uh, Peter either next or after next. Um, so the, 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 the same thing is, is uh, morality is boundary. That, and it, it's not even that, that God wanted to keep some good thing from the angels, but it doesn't work. And, and we saw that was actually the occasion in Genesis for the flood. That man became wicked. Why? And, you, and you, what, it, what is the wickedness? This is interesting in that just the narrative is it is um, 
unboundaried behavior. Angels do whatever they want. They come down and do what they want to do. And so human beings, they see things, and I want this, I just grab it. And remember now that morality is, is always communal. It is always about how um, we live together in community. How I keep from hurting you and you keep from hurting me. It's not about your limitation on enjoyment. Life works better if we don't break each other's marriage bonds. Life works better if we don't steal from each other. Then we can play, I know my stuff is safe. But because some people steal, we have to lock our doors. And, you know, it looks better if we don't kill each other. Even better if we turn that into the command, we actually do good for each other and love. Works better if we don't lie about each other because um, gossip, because uh, all and covet that we're we lurk on contentment. So morality is always communal, and my 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 willingness to keep my boundaries. And this actually goes over even the angelic state. There's probably a larger thing here about contentment because it suggests that the angels were discontented with what God had given them. And that's a big struggle in the, in the Christian life, in life in general, is that, you know, I've been given this and I'm looking over there, and well, they have that. I want that. And contentment is the um, faith and trust that God has given me everything I need to be fulfilled. And um, so I can be contented within who I am. As someone who has more money, I, I, in, in the greatest virtue, be, you know, be happy for them and, you know, and even be grateful. I don't have some of those temptations that they have. And, and every state of life has its own challenges, benefits, virtues. But to embrace your own state, and not perpetually want to be someone else, is a Christian virtue. We should note here that this is a real problem in the whole American experience. Why? Well, because often well-being is always seen in competition. You have to make more money. Why? Well, because you have to make more than someone else to show that you're in this echelon where you can see a superior. But biblically, making more money doesn't make you any better. It may make you subject to more temptations. So not having it has certain things, and having it is is some is is a, a form of temptation as well as a blessing. And so, whatever state of life you have to discipline yourself. If 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 there's not enough for a season, we have to discipline ourselves against uh, anger at God and 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 disappointment and praying for God to provide. If we have a lot, we have to be work on being generous and 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 letting go of so we're not holding on to it, but that's their struggle and my struggle, and that's I think that's implicit in this angels not keeping their proper domain. We have to be content with who we are, and, and then once we do that and we start focusing on who we are in relationship to God, the good God has given me, the joy I have in God, life, life becomes joyous, because the thing is, and this is the big, this is the lie, is that the idea that if I could only be like them, I'd be happy. No, you you bring who you are wherever you are. 
So if you were if you're miserable as a poor person, you'd be miserable when you get rich. And if you're contented at one stage in life, you can be contented in every stage you go into. And that will also go the other direction. If, if you had and you experienced misfortune, you'll learn to accept that as, as what God, what comes to you. Um, Yeah. Can you all hear this online? So um, Ruth is saying that a lot of the transgender stuff is rooted in discontentment with who I am. And uh, saying she heard an interview from Bruce Jenner, who is now someone else, I guess, or says he's someone else about how he used to look at how comfortable women seem to be in their own bodies and how he wanted to be that. Yeah, and, and um, the, but this, this also, and so that, that I think that's, a, a, so, so, so breaking the boundary of who you are, wanting you cannot be, and it's gonna be, it's going to be, um, yeah, it's, it already is a disaster. Uh, for for example. for people because you you just there's so many long-term impacts of this there's no there there and I, I guess back to the Christian framework not everyone's going to accept this but um, if you're uncomfortable in the space you're in the challenge and your fighting lights to become comfortable find God to understand who you're called to be because you're probably uncomfortable because you're, you're you're listening to other voices about how inadequate, which is always ironic, too, in terms of the, you know, I, I don't remember, Ruth Jenner was a famous athlete who, 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 who like, is on top of the world. So it doesn't mean that it, you, don't, you don't become discontented just because you were a failure. You can become discontented because you were successful and then, but the message of that is the success is not the thing. You have to find who you are. So the idea that you have to work and grow and change your outlook to be comfortable with who you are, that's a fundamental Christian reality. We're, we're growing into our true selves. We don't understand who we are yet. So this boundary thing is really significant, this proper domain. Angels for ourselves to reflect God really is significant. And the great... You know, virtue, if we develop it, most of us are short of the perfect ideal, is is to say, um, like we take Bruce Jenner's thing about looking women be comfortable, well, how good for that? Why don't I try to cultivate being comfortable myself who I am? I, in other words, so to be grateful, not envious, that's, that's, that's the sin of envy leading one to do something wrong. 
That, and envy usually has to do with person. That's how it, it distinguishes from covetousness. Covetousness might be, you have a bunch of stuff and I'd like your stuff. I don't really want to be you. I just want your stuff. Envy has more to do with, like, I want to be you because I, I, I don't like who I am. So um, that's why for covetousness, the virtue we want to cultivate is gratitude and generosity with what we have, be contented. And with envy, we also want to be you know, content and grateful for who we are. Those are kind of the contours of that. So I move on. So we can't, they can't be heard on the, on the thing. So, um, so the angels, they're reserved under everlasting chains, darkness, the judgment of the great day, which means that there's, you know, there, there's decisions we make that are very hard to come back from. And I don't, I, the, this, I had an interesting, I don't want to mention this to you, but I went and saw Father Francis a few weeks ago, uh, and he said he did a retreat on um, forgiveness, and he had a, a transgender person come to him. It's just, here you are in the middle of it. So even then, we don't, you know, there's still the love of God, but you, you can't, you know, there's things happen that you, you, you probably, then it becomes, has to become a, a, a repentance and a desire to get back. So we had the story, so understand the stories we're dealing with here that Jude is using. The story of um, Israel coming out of Egypt, needing to persevere through the wilderness, but falling. So it's possible to be baptized and have faith, but to fall. And the angels didn't keep their proper domain. They were God's, cho- you know, God made them. And they didn't keep it, they broke out, and so they're, they're in, under judgment. So we, were God's chosen, need to, need, need to observe the, the boundaries that God has given us. Verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. What's interesting about that story is that it reverses the lust of Genesis 6, where angels lusted after human women. If you remember in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels came down and the men said, bring out these visitors, we may know them. So all this kind of unbridled thing that doesn't keep its and so in both in both ways uh, the the um, the judgment of God and, and so here's it's interesting that the, the so therefore the fire that came down on Sodom he he kind of equates with the eternal fire. Um, it's interesting too that. Um, There is a, a connection to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah about hospitality, and sometimes that connection, because it's mentioned later in the uh, scriptures, it's used to sort of minimize the, the moral component of the sin. Uh, but to me, it highlights the communal nature of morality. One of the reasons you don't just lust after everything is you're supposed to welcome people and bring them in to see how you can love them, not just to think about what you're going to take from them. 
So the lack of hospitality, immorality are in many ways the same thing. And this is the problem with with a kind of unbridled sexuality is that it gives me the idea that I'm free to take something from somebody that's not their good or my good. But I'm not only doing it to me, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing someone else into what I'm doing. And so it's inhospitable because hospitality, and that's kind of where we have the ministry's sense of hospitality as a um, framework. We're inviting people into the space and loving them as they are, but not, you know, taking from them, not taking advantage of them for our own good, but giving them of our fullness uh, a space to heal and grow. Verse 8. Likewise also, these dreamers, so now he's getting to the people who have stuck in, and he's connected them with three Undesirable groups of people. The Israelites overthrown in the wilderness, the fallen angels, and the men of Sodom. These people you haven't noticed, this is who they are in your midst. Um, but you, you remember, um, in, in the, uh, the, there'll be some more analogies coming up, but this does creep in. You remember we were doing Revelation and letters in Revelation. There was the, you know, the the, the sin of, of Jezebel mentioned, and also the um, what's that thing? You, you you the Nicolaitans, and this seems to be some of the same thing of people coming in who who, who don't recognize boundaries on things, and um, they have a negatively. Um, leavening impact on body. These dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. So, defile the flesh, that is, don't, they don't honor their bodies. Uh, as St. Paul says, um, you, were, you were bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body. They reject authority because to 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 do this is, is to have to say I'm not the command that apply to me and speak evil of dignitaries. That is, they'll they'll speak slanderously of people who who probably thinking here of people who uphold the faith. Because if you're going to not listen to people, you have to discredit them. So those things kind of go hand in hand. Follow oh, flesh. The others too. The others too. And there, in, in the larger sense, this is something very significant. The whole idea that the church is the body of Christ. That that um, that we're interconnected. And so, in a sense, even when we think we're doing something personally all by ourselves. We're not because we're a member of a body and our wound that we're experiencing then leaves the body devoid of us, our gifts, our, our positive contributions. It, 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 you, you say, I'm not hurting anyone. Well, if you are if you go break your arm, your arm is not going to work. Now, everything else is got to work harder. So there's no real sense of it just being an individual. That's right. 
this, this three, the more I think about it here, is almost uh, always together, right? You do something wrong, if you're rejecting authority, and then you're going to slander those to uphold the authority. So there's going to be things that are almost always connected. Godless, they are godless men, they're lawless. Bodies per se, they are. Well, and one of the things here that, that comes out of what Diane is saying is a lot of times you say, Well, I believe God, but I'm not going to listen to you, you know, whether it be me as bishop or someone as priest. It's like nothing in the scriptures justifies that. That, that what's clear is that if authority has been put in place, whether it be gov governing authority or church authority, the, the, we're supposed to submit to it, not because the authority is always right about everything, but because it, it, it's the way you keep order. Now, if authority is acting unjustly, there's a whole moral conversation about how you, you respond righteously to that. But what you don't do is, is, is you know, engage in full-scale rebellion. And, and that's, that's, the, that's the problem that, 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 uh, that, that you know, comes up in that. So that, that the willingness to submit to authority, legitimate authority, is submitting to God. And the unwillingness to submit to legitimate authority is, is a rebellion against God. Because, you know, St. John said, he doesn't love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God who he does not see? But if he does not obey the rules that God has given in this place through this, how can he say he's obeying God? And that distinction is is a little bit of what's probably caught out in this, this framework of Gnostic heresy that's coming up, not, not sort of Gnostic licentious heresy here. Um, verse 9, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him the reviling accusation that said the Lord rebuked you. Now, a couple things here. There are two books referred to by Jude that are not biblical books. They're part of um, a group of writings that calls her the, 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 Jew, the Jewish Apocrypha or the Pseudopigrapha, sometimes it goes by. These are not our apocryphal books. These are not the ones we hold. These are uh, esoteric Jewish writings that had some currency. And so some people, um, you know, question, but the fact that um, he refers to this story doesn't mean he's saying that that book is scripture. He's citing an example. Um, and the example, in the, in the assumption of Moses, the tradition was when Moses died, uh, and, and, and I think he died on Mount Nebo to die, that there was a, a, a dispute with Michael the Archangel uh, and the devil over his body. And that Michael uh, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said the Lord rebuked He didn't slander even, even the evil one. So Michael, Michael the Archangel has a, has a uh, even even in opposing evil, Michael um, not bring a reviling, angry accusation. Distrusted God. But that's 
if you think that your slanderous speech is upholding something good, I think is what you just say. Your slanderous speech itself shows you're not upholding what is good. Opposing evil does not allow you to be evil. And this is something that's really important in our current public discourse. Because if, if your opposition to evil allows you to do evil, then the end justifies the means. And that's demonic morality. And it's also a morality that's rooted in the temporal. Because if you need some result, it, that, that you have to affect by your activism, then you're inevitably going to compromise something right and good to get it. But if you're upholding the highest and best good of the faith, first thing you do is sometimes you realize, hey, to do what is right here, I might not get what I want. And you let we have to let we have to learn to let go of it and do what is right. That's the cross. What we're told is that framework leads us to the resurrection. God will vindicate us, and there'll be a reward for that. And that's precisely the contours of authentic faith, the willingness to do what is right when there is no apparent reward for it, trusting that there is a reward for it. So be, be, being, beware of slanderous speech, and, and, there, and therefore, even in the church, to follow Jude's theme, to beware of people who, who slander others, even if they're like, they're, they stand sound for good, well, they're talk, when you hear someone talking evil about someone, it's like, it's a member of the body of Christ, we should direct people to, okay, do you, do you want to go talk to that person? You, how do you think the right way to handle that is? Verse 10. We're about at, uh, I tell you what, I'll read 10 or 11, then we'll stop, so we're at 11.30. We'll, we'll do the second half, verse 12 on next week. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. Whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, these things, they corrupt themselves. So it's unbridled speech. This kind of goes back, we're going to come and do some study in James, where he talks about the tongue being like untamable. We can govern animals, we can put bridles on them, we can tame a horse, but the tongue. So it is It is one reason, so, so when people don't bridle their tongue, it's an indication of, of a disorder. It's one reason our own spiritual life, when we're highly triggered in our lives, you know, feeling reactive to something. It's why we need to learn. We can't get rid of that. We can practice not saying anything or not doing anything for the passes. And then if we want to oppose something in a more thoughtful state, we can then. But these don't do that. They just say whatever they're going to have. Whatever they want to do, they do. They're ungoverned and unbridled. Woe to them if they have gone in the way of Cain having run greedily into the air of Balaam for profit, rebellion for us. 
That's a stopping place for mine. I'm not going to do a too short a version. We'll actually go back to verse 11 next time because we need to pick up what Cain and Balaam and Korah are all about as instructive stories. We'll stop there. We'll pick up. We'll study the second half of Jude next week. Let's pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us. Be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up his countenance upon us. Give us peace this day and forevermore. Good to have you all with us. Good online crew today. I've got about 10 online friends. It's great. More than we have here. (laughs) Thank you. Good to see you all. Peace. Bye. Many thanks.